We're going to get into Ephesians again. Uh, we're going to get into the whole book of Ephesians, all six chapters. Uh, we're going to wrap it up, review it, uh, try and focus in on the major emphasis of the book. So if you want to turn to me, turn with me to Ephesians. Let me pray, and, and then we're going to read Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. Father, if we take a moment and just sit in silence, will we listen to the sounds that make us sing praise, to the voice of children, and the joy that they bring to our gathering? The joy that they have, the innocence that they have. Lord, will we see them as an example of how we are to come to you as children coming to our Father? Lord, as we think of the sunshine and the birds, we think of friendship and laughter. Lord, all these beautiful gifts that you have given us to cause us to sing praise, to cause our hearts to rejoice and delight in those things that are more than the giver of you. Lord, as we come to review this letter that was written to a church some 2,000 years ago, Lord, will we benefit from this everlasting word that you have penned through men's hands, Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, may you inspire us, inspire men to write down your word and preserve it for us today, that your church would be thoroughly equipped, ready for good works. Lord, as we come to think about the doing in our Christian walk, but more importantly, what has been done in order for us to live this new life, Lord, will we have a firm grasp and a firm understanding of our identity in you, Jesus. You who are our King and our Saviour. You who are our righteousness, our holiness, our goodness, where all source of grace flows from, Lord. All ability to obey you comes from, Lord. Let us know you more, understand you more, and trust all the more in the death and resurrection of Christ who has redeemed us from our transgressions and sins. We praise you, Lord. We give you honour. So it's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Vision 1, 3 to 14. I think it's appropriate that when we finish this letter, we finish with the emphasis on who Christ has made us to be and who Christ has put us in, namely himself. So the, the book of Ephesians, if you've heard me say it many times, 1, 2, and 3 are about how Christ has claimed us. 4, 5, and 6 is about what we should now live like, or how we should walk. That's the phrase that Paul so often uses. But who we are shows how we are meant to live about this, this, this new life. So let's read this. And then I'll pack just bits and pieces throughout Ephesians and I'm sum it up so that we can go from Ephesians uh, to the new life. 
Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things to Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believe in Him, the silver the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. It's the word of the Lord. As we have been over the last few months, starting Ephesians in February and finishing verse by verse preaching last week, we want to rehash everything, try and sum it down to something that we can take away and remember every time that we come back to the book of Ephesians, what it's about, how we, how we understand that letter, and how we apply it to our life. So the last sort of three months, three and a half months, we've actually been in the doing of Christian life. If we remember to chapters 4, 5, and 6, it's all been about our walk. Walk in humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with not one another in love. Our relationship to one another has changed. We are now the church, no longer slave or free, no longer from wealthy suburbs or poor suburbs, no longer from a, a particular racial background. We are in Christ, one new nation under Christ. That is the church. It's not a building, it's a people, God's people. We know that from this new creation that God has created us to be, our marriages change, our parenting changes, and the way we work changes. Whether we are the boss or the employee, every part of our life has changed. And it can be summed up, whether it's marriage, parenting, or workplace, as a humble servant. We are humble servants in our marriages. We are humble servants in our parenting. We are humble servants, whether we are boss or employee, in our workplace. The emphasis, I guess, towards the end is that we, in the end, are weak. And there is a tempter seeming to derail us from living this life that Christ has claimed us for. It can sound so hard. When we sum all that up, humility, gentleness, patience, everything changing, marriage, parenting, workplaces, our relationship to one another, bearing and enduring with the church and not giving up on each other, that all sounds so hard. If 
feels like it's a tug against our natural instinct. And the walk as a Christian can sometimes feel overbearing and like it's not even something we desire. A struggle, a pushing against the brain. And we sit there at the start of the day and we say things like, oh, I'm not going to swear today, I'm not going to lie, I'm not going to provoke my children to anger. I'm going to try and speak to my neighbour or my colleague about Jesus. And then by the end of the day, we sit back and go, oh, I did swear, I did lie, I did provoke my children to anger, and I didn't end up talking to that person. Sometimes that's how it feels, right? Sometimes it feels like we're swimming against the tide or struggling in this uh, new life that Christ has for us. But that's not how it's meant to be. That's not how it's meant to be. We're not meant to be grinding it out, gritting our teeth, feeling like we're swimming against the current, but there should be in the midst of pursuing holiness and living in Christ, there should be joy. Joy and freedom. So it's important. It's important that when we understand the doing as a Christian, that we understand our place before God. That we understand chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians. So we're not going to look at what we need to do as Christians. We're going to look at who we are. Where we started in Ephesians. When we started in February and March and April. When we preached through chapters 1 and then chapter 2 and chapter 3. As Paul expands over and over again on who we are in Christ. What Christ has done in order to make you holy. We're going to find that our person, that the, the, the creation that God has put us in, is that we can't step out of that. You don't start in the morning as a child of God and end in the evening as a child of Satan. That's not what happens. You are, once and for all, if you are in Christ, Christ, you are always Christ. You are God's child. And we will unpack that. And hopefully what will motivate us is that we will see that living in Christ, understanding our identity in Him, will help us have a life of freedom to pursue holiness and a joy in the midst of refraining from sin and being obedient to God's word. The Christian doesn't start with doing The Christian starts with what has already been done. The Christian always starts with what has already been done. And that's not the way the world thinks, and it's not the way religion thinks. Every religion in the world thinks, what do I have to do to be a better person? How can I be a good person? Have I done enough today to be a good person? And then we start to compare ourselves to maybe someone who's not as good as us. And we look at people in communities, in our workplace, in our neighbourhood and say, well, I'm better than that person. But the Christian, the Christian doesn't start with doing, but what has been done. And I think a great example of that is in Acts 2 when Peter starts to preach, the first sermon ever spoken after Christ is Peter with thousands of Jews gathering and he gets up and he preaches in front of thousands and he tells them the story of God starting in the Old Testament leading up to Jesus and how Jesus was crucified, died, buried and raised to life. And the people are cut to the heart, it says, and they, they say, Peter, what should we do? And he says, repent, believe and be baptized. 
But where did Peter start? With what had already been done. Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. The repentance, the belief, the baptism, the symbol of new life, and that changed life comes after what Christ has already done for us. So let me have an attempt at a paragraph or, or a little summary of Ephesians. Uh, it's a prayer. I wrote it as a prayer to God. And, and here's, here's, here's the summary that I think helps us sort of boil down what Ephesians is about. Once I was a stranger and alien to you, dead in my transgressions, but you, being rich in mercy, chose, adopted, and redeemed me in Christ. In Christ you sealed me with the Holy Spirit, brought me to your household, the church. I am your workmanship from before the foundation of the world, when you chose me to the day, to the day when my inheritance is acquired. To the praise of your glorious grace, because of you, I can walk worthy of this. That's not my words, it's mostly praises from Ephesians. Bound together in a paragraph that helps us understand that it's all about God and His workmanship, and that is why we can walk worthy. It's what He has done that enables us to do anything at all. Let's unpack this summary, pointing to the scriptures in Ephesians. It's a, very, it's a different sermon, we're not preaching verse by verse or passage, but rather trying to sum up our identity in Christ in order to live out a holy life in Christ. I want to start in chapter 2. We're looking at, in that phrase, being strangers, alien and dead in our trespasses and sin. And in chapter 2, we get this beautiful picture of the gospel. And Paul starts in a dark place. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So we start here as Paul starts to share the gospel with the church, but he's not sharing it in a way that condemns them, but rather encourages them. What we first need to realise is these words here, you, were, you once walked and you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins and you once walked in the patterns of this world or following the prince of the power of the air. What Paul wants to do is encourage believers to remember who we once were and who we now are. Now, if you are a believer, you have repented, believed in Christ, and you symbol that by baptism in water, which demonstrates that you have been brought from death to life. Baptism has no power to save you, but merely a public declaration of your salvation to the church, saying, Church, get behind me. I need your support. I am a new creation. As Paul states our hearts, as he reminds us of our bondage to the old self, our bondage to sin, he reminds us that God has no dwelling place for sin. God has no dwelling place among unholy people. That's the Garden of Eden, the way God created the world and put man in it, and man and God dwelt together. God walked with Abraham, uh, Adam. Getting my Bible story. 
God walked with Adam, but when sin entered in, Adam was cast out. Adam and Eve were separated. God could not dwell. We then see this all the way through the Old Testament as man who comes into the presence of God either dies or falls on their face because God cannot dwell with sinful men. Ephesians, 12, uh, Ephesians 2.12 confirms our separation, reminding us that we were once strangers and aliens from God. This is the state of all humankind. Everyone is a stranger of God. Everyone is an alien to God. We are separated by our sin, by our rebellion against God. We are tainted. God called us to be holy, Romans 3, 26. You have uh, fallen short of the standard of the glory of God. But we have not been able to live up to that standard. So when we think about Ephesians, Paul reminds us, this is who you were. You were a stranger. You were an alien. You were spiritually dead. You were unable to come to God, to know God, or understand God. So this is all meant to be an encouragement. And right now it sounds like a discouragement, right? But he doesn't stop there because in verse 4 of chapter 2, he says, But God, who is rich in mercy. What we need to grasp in order to live out a holy life is that it wasn't anything that you did that enabled you to come to God, but all that Christ did for you. Christ was cursed, cut off from the land of the living. Christ died. So when we think about Ephesians 2, and he reminds us that you were dead in your transgressions, that you followed the prince and the power of the air, the, the devil, Satan, that you were strangers and aliens of God, when we think about Genesis 3 and 4, how the people were separated from God and sent out, Christ took on that position when he had no reason to. Christ was holy. He's described as the Holy One of God, the Righteous One. And He took on our curse. He got cut off from the land of the living. Christ died in our place. This is the doctrine, and I'm going to use a big few words, but just, not, they're not all big, but it's a doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. And the reason I'm telling you that is I think all Christians should know. Which is if you don't know what it means for someone to substitute into your place, you don't understand Christianity. Christianity is not a list of morals that we keep, but it's a person that we are in, and his name is Jesus. So penal substitutionary atonement is literally Christ substituting himself, putting himself in your place in order for you to be in him. So Christ came in. He was cursed. You should have been cursed, but he was cursed. He was cut off. He died, and he was buried. And in so doing, in his resurrection, defeats death and sin and gives you the legal status of righteousness. That is the good news of the gospel. That right now, if you repent and believe in Jesus, you are no longer guilty before God, but you are righteous. You were seen as his son. When Jesus was baptized, the Father looked upon him, and the Spirit descended upon Jesus, and he said, This is my son, who I am, who I am well pleased with. The only human 
God could ever say that to was Jesus, who was God in flesh. Christ, who God is well pleased with, is the one you and I stand in today. So instead of being dead in our trespasses and sins, strangers and aliens to God, we become children of God, as Christ is. So we need to understand who we were in order to understand what Christ has claimed for us, to understand the richness of who we now are, which will flow onto how we are ought to live. So in verse 4 it says, But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So the two words that stand out here are mercy and grace. And these two words we need as Christians to understand the depth of them. Mercy is that we don't forget, we don't get what we deserve. Romans 6 tells us the punishment of sin is death. The punishment of sin is death, or wages of sin is death. We deserve to die and to be cut off from the land of the living. We deserve to be separated from our holy God, the one who created all things, designed all things, purposed all things, the one we lived in rebellion of. We deserve not to know him. Yet he was rich in mercy. And instead of pouring out his full rock on us, he poured out his full rock on Christ. We deserve death, but we will be saved from death. We will die. That is the truth of it. Every one of us here will die, but we will be saved from death. For those who are in Christ will defeat death like Christ and resurrect when Christ returns. Not only are we, we don't, not only do we not get what we deserve, but we get what we don't deserve. Grace is God giving us Himself. Grace is God giving us Himself. We don't deserve anything. We don't deserve life. We don't deserve breath. We don't deserve the jobs we have or the houses we live in. We don't deserve these things. We aren't entitled to them. They are gifts of God's common grace to us. But the gift of His, of the, the most all-consuming grace, this special grace, is that He would give Himself to the church, his people. The gift of grace is that God gives us himself. He gives us himself to Jesus, who is the word of God, the very flesh of God, God in flesh. Jesus is not just a, another creation of God, but rather he is God. And God gives us himself through Christ dying on the cross, but also he gives us himself in that he is giving us his spirit to dwell within us. Ephesians 2.21 says that we are a holy temple. We are a holy temple. And in Him, 22, you also are being built together into the dwelling place of God by the Holy Spirit. So not only today do you have, if you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, but the church, we, His people, are being built into a holy temple and one day we will dwell with God. Revelation, the last book of the Bible, ends with us having this phrase, and we will see his face. 
and we will see His face. The one we could not look upon. The one we couldn't see without dying. The one, if we saw His glory, would fall down dead. We will see His face. Grace is God giving us Himself. And the greatest picture of this in Ephesians is this phrase in chapter 1, verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him, not going further, verse 5, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. What I want to remind us of is this understanding of adoption as sons. The greatest picture of God's grace and us dwelling with Him and seeing His face is this relationship between father and child. Now the reason this doesn't translate to children, because this is both for men and women, is because there was emphasis around what the son would receive in the day when this was written. In those days, the son would receive the full inheritance. Everything that his father owned would become his, and he would look after his uh, family if they weren't married, if he had sisters, he would look after them, if they were married, they would go off and live with their husband. So he's using the context of the time to build weight and to remind us that this is a significant promise. This is a significant identity change. You were once strangers and aliens. You were once spiritually dead. But in Christ you are adopted into the place of a son who has an inheritance. An inheritance. The inheritance, of course, is... God Himself. A Father. One who will dwell with and see His face. You know, the first era, the first, the Ephesian church that they read this, this would have floored them. Absolutely floored them. They would have been gobsmacked if they read those words, He predestined you for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. It would have absolutely shocked them. If you remember earlier in the year when we actually taught on this few verses, in those days adoption was nothing more than slavery. That's what they did. Kids would be looked at as they are born. If their father didn't want them, he would step over them and leave them, and then they would be taken to a mountain where they would leave the child there. And slave drivers would walk up that hill and they would adopt those children into slavery. Not all of them, only the ones that could work and make them slaves. So when they read this, and they say, He will adopt you as sons, they're going, no one ever adopts someone as a son. No one will take a stranger or an alien, a foreigner, into their home and say, I'm going to give you everything of mine. Would it floor us again, church, to read those words and see that Christ, through Christ, we are adopted into God's family as children who receive an inheritance. Let this be the place in which we serve God. Let be the place of a child before a father that we serve from. Knowing that God is not sitting up there angry as we disobey Him and fail Him over and over again. He is sitting there as a loving Father with His eyes upon us, correcting and disciplining us, 
into a place of obedience. It's the place we always are. Whether we've had a good day or a bad day, there's no such thing as good days and bad days as Christians. There's only just days. Days of being children. Children who wander. Children who stray and whose father draws them back over and over again. Knowing who you are in Christ will determine how you do things as a Christian. But this book doesn't just stop with being a child. It confirms that you are secure. Brother and sister, there is no such thing as I once was a Christian. You are a Christian today, and you'll be a Christian forever, or your confession of faith was false to begin When we read this passage, or this book, this letter to the church, we see in 1 14 that we have been given the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit that is given to us, that changes our desires and our motivation for life, that changes who we want to be and what we want to strive for, that takes us from loving sin to hating sin, from hating God to loving God. That Holy Spirit is the promise that we will inherit the, that we will inherit Christ, that we will inherit God in His things, that we will see His faith. The guarantee is that the Holy Spirit is working in us, changing our desires. He hasn't changed them completely. He's at this very moment changing your desires. He's at this very moment changing the way you wander in this world. He's conforming us and making us into what a holy temple. And a holy temple is where Christ or God will dwell. You may wander into the world. You may end up in sin at times. And you may feel like sin is covering you and you're just completely failing God. You may feel like that. But that's not the truth of where you are. The truth is that at times... You will wander off into the world to experience how lifeless and empty the world is. So that you may be brought a little lower and come back in repentance to God and the Father who cares for you. Don't think your wandering is a loss of salvation. That's not possible. You don't hold on to God, God holds on to you. Let your walk be one of confidence. And church, if you don't have confidence, if you aren't sure that you have salvation, do whatever it takes to find that certainty. Do whatever it takes to figure it out. Study the Word. Examine your walk, your life. Ask people in the church to give you counsel. And here's just a few questions you can think about. Are you repenting regularly? Do you just have grief over your sin? You don't like it, it's there, you know you, you know you walk in disobedience at times and you're just repenting. Do you have humility about it? Are you a humble person who can admit weakness? And is your ultimate desire, the triumph over other desires in your life, to be 
with God. Only God. Is that your ultimate desire? You may wander off into your desires for a time, but will you come back and say, ultimately, ultimately in my life, I want to honor God? This is a few questions that you can think about. Because to be repenting and to be humble and to desire God is often evidence of the Holy Spirit. Because you wouldn't otherwise desire them. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, as I said before. And if we're dead in our trespasses and sins, it's unlikely that humility will be part of our life. It's unlikely that repentance will be part of our life. And it's definitely unlikely that God will be our ultimate desire. The good fruit of salvation... The good fruit of salvation is that you ultimately will endure, that you will love, that you will continue in humble repentance day after day, year after year, until you breathe your last and go be with God. Our greatest assurance is that we will endure, that we keep coming back, that we keep repenting. Your your assurance of salvation is, is important in your doing in the way you live your life. Because if you're unsure, you'll start serving out of a legalistic mindset. Doing more to try and please God. Or beating yourself up every time you fail and fall. But we don't need to beat ourselves up. Jesus was beaten up for you. Remember, church, you are sealed. You're a child. Which will play out from repentance that says, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross of the Day after day, week after week, year after year, nothing did you bring for your salvation and nothing did you bring for your sanctification that you're purifying. It's simply that you hold onto the cross of Christ that he died. And that reminds us that Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in walk in it. And 1 verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What we need to remember is that all things are in control of God. We are from beginning to the end God's workmanship. From our salvation, from the very day that we come to believe in Him was planned and purposed by Him, ordained by Him. And the process in which you'll be sanctified is purposed by Him as well. It is His giving to you His grace as you overcome disobedience and sin and addiction and idolatry in your life. Would our prayers in our doing grow from a place of weakness, humility, surrender, and not guilt or shame or earning? Knowing that our Knowing that we are His workmanship, not our own. You're not striving for your salvation. You're not earning any any good gift from God. He's given it freely. But it comes from a place 
of surrender and humility, not guilt, shame, and anger. Let prayers come from that place. And for this to happen, it's about knowing who we are. You know what? That's the hardest thing about being a teenager. You don't know who you are, right? Maybe that leads into your young adult hoods. Yeah, yeah, young adult hood. I don't know what the right term is. Young adult are nothing. That's no real term. As either kids or adults. That's what we should have in society. That's just a little rant. Side note there. But teenagers, they struggle because they don't know who they are. There's this waywardness as a teenager because your identity is just messed up. You're no longer a child, but you're not really an adult. And it's confusing. Knowing who we are in Christ, knowing that we are His workmanship, knowing that we are children, will shape how we live and what we do. If we believe that we are no good, hopeless, helpless Christians, we will probably end up in legalism. We will end up striving to earn God's favour, trying to earn more love from Him, beating ourselves up if we fail. But if by the scripture you remind yourself, remind yourself, whether you're young or old, that the truth of God's word will set you free. The truth of God's word will set you free. And the truth of God's word is that you are a child, that you're a doctor, that you're his workmanship. So as we come to prayer, as we come to the start of the day and the end of the day, we don't start by making long lists of what we can do. Today I'm going to do this. I'm not going to do this. And then by the end of the day, we're just beating ourselves up because we failed that list. No, we start the day with Father. Thank you that I can call you Father. We start the day by reminding ourselves Thank you that you chose me. Thank you that you redeemed me from being dead in my trespasses and sins. Thank you that I'm secure. And we can say along with the old, the preachers of old, give me grace, O Lord, to do as you command. See, God doesn't expect you to do this on your own. God's grace is Him giving us Himself. It's also Him giving us His Spirit. And our ability to do good works and our ability to obey comes solely from Him, just as our salvation does. So the Christian isn't about doing, but about being dependent on God's grace. Augustine said this, Give me grace, O Lord, to do as you command, and command me to do what you will. O holy God, when your commands are obeyed, it is from you that we receive the power to obey them. This is the place of a child. This is the place of a child of God to say, God, I cannot obey. I need your grace. I need you in me. God's grace is him giving us himself. I need you in me. I need your Holy Spirit to help me to obey what you command. And when I do obey, when I do obey, it is because you give me that power to obey. How often at the end of the day is our prayer or lack of prayer because of our sin and error? Do we sit back and say, Oh God, I've 
failed in this area and I'm stuffed up here and I keep doing this or I feel unworthy, I'm not going to pray, I'm not going to read the Bible I'm a horrible Christian, I failed being a Christian and stuff like What if our prayer turned from focusing on our errors and failings and rather start to focus on the grace in which God gave us for that? So our prayers turn more into God, today, I'm sorry that I stumbled. I'm sorry that I didn't commit, that I didn't do what you commanded me to do. But Lord, I saw in me today an ability to do things I didn't want to do. I saw a new desire in me. Or God, you gave me this small bit of grace where I didn't lie to my boss. Or you gave me this small bit of grace where I said no to this one time of using well, you gave me this small bit of grace that, that helped me have a desire for you and prayer and reading. That today, Lord, I sat down and read the word and prayed to you. Do you realize that the fact that you pray to God and read the word is not because you desire it, because God gave you the desire to do so? Would our prayers at the end of the day not be about our errors and our failing, but about Christ and what he has done? So that we can then go on living out a Christian life in freedom, with joy, knowing that when we stumble and fall, we're in Christ. Knowing that when we stumble and fall, we're still children. Knowing that when we stumble and fall, we may be corrected and disciplined, but it's not punishment, it's for our own good. Christ was punished once and for all. And then our prayers can turn from wallowing and self-pity to God, you gave me grace today. You gave me grace to obey. You gave me grace to be a better husband, a better wife, a better parent, a better child, a better work employee. That's the word. His grace in us is the ability to obey Him. Church, the, the freedom we have from chapters 1, 2, and 3 is it reminds us of our identity in Christ, that we are children that are secure in Him. From today and forevermore is what will help us in our living, in our living out Christian life. Let our prayers be, oh thank you God, that you have given me grace to obey what you command me to do. But will we not finish there, but finish with the three calls to praise in chapter 1? Verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. Verse 12, to the praise of His glory. And verse 14, to the praise of His glory. It would seem appropriate to finish our series on Ephesians with the reminder that you are secure as a child of God. And it's because of God's grace. So let the praise His glorious grace. As the book of Ephesians calls us to over and over again, as it declares blessing after blessing, and then calls us to praise His name. You, are, you have been made a new creation for the glory of God to be displayed through His church, His bride. We have been told the gospel, the gospel of freedom, so that the focus is not on your performance, but on Christ's performance. That is why it is the gospel of freedom. Because it's not on your performance, it's on Christ's performance. 
and he performed perfectly in order that you could live in him. So brothers and sisters, today and forevermore in Christ, live to the praise of his glorious grace. Live in freedom of repentance and in, in his daily grace to obey him. His daily grace to obey him. The praise of his glorious grace. Praise and glory. Amen. 